3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to late 30 a.m. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 a.m. It is 7.02 in the morning on Thursday the, oh gosh, what is it? Thursday the, is it the 6th? It's the 7th. It's the 7th. It says the 4th on our run sheet. I got confused. Um, but good morning, Malika. Good morning, Priya. How are you this morning? Yeah, I'm all right. I, I kind of enjoyed the, the chilly morning, but then by the time that I got in, uh, my inner ears were really cold. They're not really adjusting to riding in the cold yet. So, you know, you can't win them all. Um, yeah, we've got so much on today. Big, big show. Big, big show, as always. And we're also going to try and jam some tunes in there. So uh, fingers crossed. Um, I might kick off our little rundown. So first up, Anastasia from Legal Observers New South Wales is joining us to discuss serious concerns with the recent passing of anti-protest laws in New South Wales. The Roads and Crimes Crimes Legislation Amendment 2022 passed the New South Wales Parliament on Friday the 1st of April and have sparked widespread backlash from the community and advocacy groups who argue that the laws undermine the right to protest and fundamental civil liberties. We're then joined by Kate Taylor, who is a singer-songwriter, EAL teacher and refugee activist, who is the organiser and host for Musicians for Freedom, a benefit concert where musicians, activists and refugees come together to raise funds and awareness in support of refugees in detention. The event will be held at the Brunswick Ballroom on Wednesday the 27th of April at 6.30pm. And we're then going to be joined by Jason Sadowski, who's a senior research fellow in the Emerging Technologies Research Lab at Monash University, who's speaking with us about issues with Buy Now, Pay Later or BNPL platforms, including Australian company Fupay. And Fupay last week announced partnerships with IGA, Foodworks and United Petroleum, which has raised concerns about people experiencing financial hardship falling further into debt through using these platforms. And lastly, we were joined by Liel, who is a writer, poet, podcaster, and disability and justice advocate, who was an ABC Top 5 Arts resident in 2021. Her work is published in the ABC and the space scene of the Waiting Room Arts Company, amongst others. Liel is a creator, producer, and host of the Unmarginalized podcast, and she also works as a provisional psychologist and identifies as a proud disabled immigrant and non-conforming female, and she joins us to talk about her new book. Excellent. Yeah. I mean, so much on this week and so much to, to be across. It's, I guess, you know, especially as we're kind of navigating this this part of the pandemic, because it is ongoing, um, keeping an eye on these developments in the digital space, but also in the legis- legislative sp- space about public assembly is so important. I mean, I know that the the Roads and Crimes Legislation Amendment is in New South Wales, but it's also worth being aware of these kinds of encroachments um, and these anti-protest laws, um, you know, in light of the, uh, the Andrews government's proud announcement of uh, Victoria having more police than ever. I think um, the Andrews government said that last week. And um, it's just, 
Yeah, just a real clear indication of, uh, you know, where state and federal funding priorities are. So something to keep an eye on in the lead up to the federal election, but there's also, you know, a lead up to the state election as well. Um, being across all of these issues is really, really important. So um, hope you guys stay tuned. So here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here. Never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Yan. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast. And these are the news headlines for Thursday, the 7th of April. A protest will be held on Friday, the 8th of April by Gomorrah people, unions, climate justice groups and supporters outside the New South Wales Federal Court to resist attempts by Santos and the Commonwealth and New South Wales governments to proceed with the Pilliga Narrabri coal seam gas project. In May 2021, Santos lodged a Future Acts Determination application with the Native Title Tribunal, seeking to override Gomorrah people's rights and consent in order to exploit coal seam gas in the Pilliga Forest, which is on land subject to a Gomorrah-registered Native Title claim. In late March of this year, the Gomorrah Nation voted overwhelmingly to reject Santos' proposal. Gomorrah man Raymond Weatherall has stated that the application is, quote, seeking permission to strip us of our rights and usurp our country regardless of our decision. The project would result in the building of 850 coal seam gas wells, putting the Pilliga ecosystem and the Great Artesian Basin at serious risk. Over the life of the project, it's projected to release 127 million tonnes of greenhouse gas emissions, carbon dioxide equivalent, into the atmosphere. Organizers of tomorrow's protests are calling for Santos to withdraw the application and respect First Nations sovereignty by ending attempts to frack in the Pilliga, as well as on the New South Wales and federal government to invest public funds in sustainable, culturally appropriate development. In other local news, the Federal Court of Australia has approved the payout of almost $100 million yesterday after class actions by Australian 7-Eleven franchisees alleging the company's business model is built on wage theft. 7-Eleven operates under a franchise network model where individuals buy the rights to operate the stores. One former franchisee who had operated two 7-Eleven stores told the ABC that the business model was so unprofitable that their family used to work in-store for free. This isn't the first wage theft allegation from 7-Eleven. In 2015, Four Corners, ABC, and Fairfax Investigation found store staff, mainly migrants, were working twice as long for half the pay. The 2015 investigation alleged that franchisees implemented this wage theft, but also that the head company was aware of it. Class action lawyer Stuart Levitt told the ABC that a 2019 parliamentary inquiry found that the entire franchise sector required drastic overhaul. The way in which so many franchise models are structured, particularly in the food industry, involve franchisees paying a large amount of money, often borrowed to buy into a franchise, with the head company imposing major expenses, and then they have no control over how it operates. 
Sorry. Oh, sorry. In world news, the report by Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change (IPCC), which was released on Monday, finds that in addition to rapid and deep reductions in greenhouse emissions, a large-scale deployment of carbon dioxide removal or CDR methods is now unavoidable if the world is to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions. CDR refers to a suite of activities that lower the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere. This is done by removing CO2 molecules and storing the carbon in plants, trees, soil, geological reserves, ocean reserves or products derived from CO2. CO2 removal is an essential element of scenarios that limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius or likely below 2 degrees Celsius by 2100. That's a weird number to say, sorry. IPCC recommends accelerated research, development and demonstration and targeted incentives to increase the scale of CDR projects. And finally, in local news... On Wednesday, the 6th of April, the CFMEU issued a warning about a toxic soil exposure site near Yapara Children's Services in Thornbury in what is being investigated as a serious incident. A nearby construction site has been involved in the dumping of soil contaminated with hazardous substances just 10 metres away from Yapara, which is a gathering and learning space for Aboriginal children, their families and community. PM Built, the principal site contractor, as well as an asbestos removalist subcontractor working under the supervision of McMahon Services Australia, have, quote, potentially exposed children, staff and parents at Yapara to toxic soil. Potential contaminants include traces of carcinogens such as asbestos, arsenic and nickel. This signals a failure by companies involved to follow state-mandated OH&S guidelines to contain and reduce the risk of exposure to dangerous substances. The CFMEU legal team is compiling a record of people who may have been exposed. So if you or your children attended Yapara between the 3rd and 9th of March 2022, please visit vic.cfmeu.org to find out more and to complete the form. So that's all we've got for the headlines, but I just wanted to draw attention to something really important. This is um, a current inquest, a coronial inquest ongoing into a missing Aboriginal woman, Miss Bernard. Um, her family has asked that she is only referred to by her surname um, since 2013. And, you know, of course, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that this discussion, you know, contains information that people might find distressing, but just wanted to highlight that um, Miss Bernard has been listed as a missing person since the 10th of February 2013, um, and she is from the Koanyama uh, Township on the western side of Cape York and was traveling around that region when she disappeared, and an inquest in Cairns has heard that the last person to see her, who was a quarry caretaker called Thomas Burns, had given conflicting stories to police who had deemed him suspicious, but this information was not passed on or followed up. And, you know, listeners might recall the interview that we did with Martin Hodgson a couple of weeks ago where he did speak about this inquest and following up on the cases of, you know, missing, disappeared um, Aboriginal women um, and girls and, and the, the complete lack of care and humanization of these cases. And so it's really important that listeners go, you know, look up Miss Bernard's case. There's a long write-up by Holly Richardson in ABC News and also um, the family is being represented by Deb Kilroy. So you can follow Deb Kilroy on Twitter for updates about this as well. I mean, it's just so important that we keep an eye on this um, and, you know, don't let 
you know, don't don't let this go unnoticed and support the fight for for justice for Miss Bernard's family and for the families of all missing um, Aboriginal women. Um, so that's all we've got for the headlines today. Trans Family is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones including parents, siblings, extended family and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax-deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, and this is a Thursday morning breakfast show. Um, we are now going to be jumping into a really beautiful song by Barker called Fight For Me, and I think it's Barker and Electric Fields. She said, don't leave me here again, ma. I need you more than you could ever understand, ma. I'm broken and alone. I know we had a broken home. Stop thinking you need a man, ma. Getting chucked around the system. Need to take my hand, ma. Wanna go home. But you're too selfish on that needle. Think you bad to the bone. Was once good, but you turned evil. And I'm sick of these thoughts. Was I ever enough? It seems that all I was taught. But I was always too much. And all I want is your love. But you don't want to come back. Yeah, you too sick on that crack. To comprehend the impact. I only see you for an hour every couple of weeks. And I'm going through so much trauma. Find it hard to just speak. You touching me in the dark. Cause I'm not worthy of love. And I'll probably turn out like you. Or lying up in a coffin. All I wanted was you. But I wasn't your problem. I guess I've got to figure out my own ways to just solve them. Want you to fight for me. Like you fight over drugs. Want you to fight for me. Go ahead and fight for my love. Want you to die for me. But you just died on me. So now I'm standing in the mirror feeling real lonely. Sorry, mommy.
I should have fought for you. I should have fought for your love, should have been there for you. It wasn't fair to you, and you're so strong, my baby, I couldn't compare to you. I should have fought for you. Instead of chasing these drugs, I should have fought for you. I should have fought for your love, should have been there for you. It wasn't fair to you, and you're so strong, my baby, I couldn't compare to you. PX Fano is a Pacifica LGBTIQ plus podcast providing a platform for Pacifica communities to unpack and discuss the narratives and the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Presented by Pacific X, a collective that celebrates Pacific Island LGBTIQ plus communities through meaningful connections that honours cultural and gender identities. You can catch the podcast series every Sunday during Out of the Pan at around 12.30pm or on your favourite podcast platform. Supported by 3CR and funded by the Victorian Government Multicultural Communications Outreach Programme. For more information, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash out of the pan. You're on Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and you just heard Fight For Me by Barca featuring Electric Field. And now we're going to go into a new track by Sicko. This is Superstar.
And that was Superstar by Sicko. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. And now we're going to go into another new track. This is a single by uh, Teether and Dawn Glory. Just and uh, just a language warning with this one. Um, but this is Dizzy by Teether and Dawn Glory. Like dogs, 
on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM and that was the new track Dizzy by Teether and Dawn Glory and can I say that was absolutely fantastic I think just ah the versatility it's it's incredible um I think Teether's going to be playing at the curtain sometime soon anyway go go look up go look up their socials um yeah such an amazing tune and uh, well worth catching a live show if you can. Um, I wanted to just quickly plug an event that's happening tonight. So Thursday, the 7th of April tonight. Um, oh, actually not tonight, during the day. So starts at 12 p.m. Um, until things are sold out. And it's by Baunyup Brunswick. And they're going to be making... Uh, quote-unquote inauthentic banmi um, with produce donated by Fiji Farm and Wattle Gully Produce with 100% of profits going to Black Pearl Studio in Fitzroy. And um, this is a really important initiative raising funds for Black Pearl, which is an incredible creative drop-in studio for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the city of Yarra. Um, and, yeah, basically raising money for this um, autonomous space for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to create and make together and, uh, yeah, community-led, culturally safe environment for local Aboriginal people who can't access mainstream spaces. And um, it's described as a place to gather and connect, to develop and expand on artistic skills and showcase the artistic outcomes of a talented and underrepresented community. So, again, this is... Um, a fundraiser for Black Pearl Studio by Banyup Brunswick uh, from 12 p.m. till everything is sold out, cooking inauthentic banh mi. And, yeah, um, so head through to Banyup this week, and you can find out more information at um, on Instagram at, at Banyup Brunswick. So, yeah, um, really encourage people to go and pick up some incredible food, but also you can donate directly to Black Pearl Studio Fitzroy by looking up their socials, and that's at Black, B-L-A-K, Pearl Studio Fitzroy. Have you heard it on the news about this 
the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Fasaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. A proud black man, proud black man, should not wonder. Strong spirit, First Nations issues, families, people and stories from a First Nations perspective. Mondays at 1pm on 3CR. Proud black man, proud black man, it should not wonder. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM. It is 731 in the morning. And we're now joined by Anastasia from Legal Observers New South Wales to discuss serious concerns with the recent passing of anti-protest laws in New South Wales. So the Roads and Crimes Legislation Amendment 2022 passed in the New South Wales Parliament on Friday the 1st of April. And this has sparked widespread backlash from community and advocacy groups who argue that the laws undermine the right to protest and fundamental civil liberties. Anastasia, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Priya. So across the country, we've seen the expansion of police powers under pandemic measures and their effects on public assembly. And I'm sure some of our listeners will recall that in 2020, New South Wales police took action, taking Black Lives Matter rally organizers to the Supreme Court to prevent that protest going ahead. So to start off with, could you tell us a bit about the legislative environment around protest in New South Wales prior to last week's anti-protest laws passing and a bit about what prompted the Parate government to put forward this amendment? Yeah, sure. So the legislative environment around protest in New South Wales is already quite constrained. So in the 1980s, the Council for Civil Liberties won some significant victories in protecting certain kinds of public assemblies. There were some protections inserted into the Summary Offences Act, where if you submitted a notification to police that you were holding a protest and the police didn't oppose that, and if you submitted it within uh, seven days before that protest going ahead, then you actually wouldn't be covered by obstruction or unlawful assembly offences. And even if you didn't have that kind of protection, then the most serious offence you could really get for obstructing a road was $400. Now, there was an offence inserted in 2018 that specifically applied to the Sydney Harbour Bridge, which we've seen become the centre of, of the regulation changes and the subsequent amendments. So in 2018, there was a single case, a non-protest-related case, of somebody climbing the Sydney Harbour Bridge and, and stopping traffic. And in response, the legislature introduced Sydney Harbour Bridge Amendment to the Roads Act, which made blocking it and major tunnels and bridges that are prescribed by regulation punishable by a $22,000 fine. So that was a very, a very serious offence, but it really hadn't been applied um, before, before this year. Mm. And in relation to the kinds of protests that we saw um, Blockade Australia and Fireproof Australia engage in that, that involve more uh, obstructive or direct behaviour, there were already offences covering that. The Blockade Australia protesters faced offences that actually had a seven-year maximum sentence. Um, in November, we saw them face offences that had a 25-year maximum sentence. Um, so there were already quite high penalties for the kinds of actions that um, direct action protesters were engaging in. 
Um, and in terms of how we saw this change come about, Fire Proof Australia engaged in an action on Spit Bridge um, in early March, which is a major bridge in the, in the north side of Sydney, um, which will become uh, relevant for reasons um, that you will soon see, which is that the, uh, the Minister for Roads was actually caught in that traffic jam, mm-hmm. as were various other members of Parliament. And very soon after that, there was, I think they were stopped on the road for about an hour. Um, very soon after that, the minister expanded the Sydney Harbour Bridge provision via regulation to cover all major tunnels and bridges in Sydney, including Spit Bridge. And actually, she authored an article yesterday called Why I Changed the Law to Stop Protesters, Fury of a Minister Caught in a Traffic Jam. So a very sort of... Um, uh, personalized and interesting road to the introduction of this legislation that is that is has sort of been sold as being very targeted mm. to duplicate Australia protesters, but is in fact drafted in a way that is very broad and covers a wide, wide range of democratic expression in New South Wales. Yeah, I I was um I was pretty floored by seeing that uh, that opinion piece title in in the Telegraph. Just the um, you know, saying saying the quiet part out loud, hey. Um, yeah, so the Roads and Crimes Legislation Amendment Bill um, is obviously the issue that we're talking about today. This particular piece of legislation passed the New South Wales Legislative Council this past Friday, the 1st of April. And, of course, a whole range of unions and organizations, including yours, Legal Observers New South Wales, had already raised concerns about this in an open letter published on Counteract on the 31st of March. So can you tell us about why this piece of legislation is so significant and what it has achieved in terms of blocking freedom of assembly and imposing consequences on people that, I guess, are in contravention of this new piece of legislation? Mm, Absolutely, yeah. So I think the the answer to that question begins with the fact that this entire debate around the introduction of the bill has used this distinction between lawful and unlawful protests with the kind of protests that Blockade Australia is doing being described as as unlawful and public assemblies and gathering on the streets and marches and rallies being kind of put in the basket of, well, these are lawful and and good and we're not trying to criminalise them. But in fact, when we look at the way that regime operates in New South Wales, as I said earlier, you have to put in a notice within a specific period uh, to the police in order for your protest to have those protections. So that line is actually quite thin, and the, and the march and the rally can easily cross over that line and become unlawful and no longer have those protection from obstruction offences and therefore also from these new offences that have been introduced that carry the two-year penalties, two-year imprisonment penalties and the $22,000 fine. So as you mentioned with the Black Lives Matter protests, um, though we only really got authorization for those uh, about five minutes from mm. the court before they went before they went ahead. So, you know, I remember standing in the crowd and looking at the approximately 150 police assembled there and wondering whether we were all going to get, you know, arrested, arrested and charged. And under the new laws, I guess, I would be wondering whether we would be arrested, you know, and, and imprisoned for two years and charged for $22,000 fine. Um, and similarly, actually, with the student climate strike most recently, just, just this past month, um, that had to be moved last minute from the domain because there was fears around damaging damaging the grass there due to the rain. And you actually can't get that authorization if you move it uh, within seven days of the protest happening. You mm-hmm. have to go to court for authorization. So that strike actually had to take place outside of these protections that the government has focused on marches and rallies still having. So as you can see, it's, it's 
it's not uncommon for marches and rallies to cross over into that line of actually not falling under the protections. And, and the other issue is that it really shifts this balance of power that we've got at the moment, where at the moment you just have to say to the police, hey, I'm doing you know, a rally, this is where it's happening. They don't have to give you approval. You, they, they just have to oppose it. They can oppose it mm-hmm. if they choose want to, to not go ahead, but they don't actually have to give explicit approval. Whereas under the new laws, in order to not fall under them, you actually need explicit approval from the from the police force in order to protest. And, you know, some might question whether something that's got explicit approval from the police force is even a protest mm-hmm. at all. So, yes, it really significantly changes that. Yeah, absolutely. And sort of, I guess, really, uh, I mean, as people have argued, really calls into question people's ability to uh, freely assemble and, you know, exercise their democratic right to protest. Um, I was also wondering if you could tell us about the bargain made by New South Wales Labor to get the bill over the line, which was uh, limited protection for industrial action. And I was wondering about the implications that this might have for cross-movement solidarity in protest actions and particularly for certain types of protests like climate justice and or Indigenous rights protests. Yeah, absolutely. So as we know, the unions, uh, they don't exist solely to protect their members or to campaign on, on industrial matters. We see the unions show up at basically any major social justice or climate rally that we see here in Sydney, which is awesome and we love to see it. Um, and what these current carve-outs for industrial action do is that they only really legitimise union participation in protests when it relates to an industrial matter or to industrial campaign. So, you know, things like wages or conditions of employment. Um, but unions take action across a broad range of issues, including, you know, the Maritime Union of Australia, or as it, it was under a different name, but it took um, action against apartheid. It participated in the anti-apartheid. Uh, boycotts that were so successful around the world, and are now so celebrated, you know, as, as bringing about the end of apartheid, mm-hmm. including by by our current government. Um, yeah, so that kind of action isn't protected. Uh, any action that they take in solidarity with First Nations uh, movements, with climate justice movements, um, unions are basically in the same boat as the rest of us. Um, and there has been. Um, you know, an, an unfortunate instance here of Labor really uh, ignoring the union's very, very staunch opposition to the bill in its entirety, in the sense that the unions were not asking for a carve-out. They were asking for Labor to oppose the bill, mm. and that just simply did not happen. Um, and although Labor tried to invo- uh, include a peaceful protest amendment, um, that was just meaningless within the framework of, of what the bill was trying to do. Um, so I think we've seen a real kind of capitulation, unfortunately, by Labor to this knee-jerk response by the government to say that um, it's acceptable to criminalise protests that are disruptive. Well, you know, union action is disruptive. Anything worthwhile doing, I would argue, Mm -hmm. is disruptive because it changes the status quo. And then two-year penalties for that um, are very concerning. Yeah, and I mean, you know, this this even... You know, we'll we'll be able to to see how this works in effect as early as tomorrow, for example, like, you know, the way that this legitimizes some protests and delegitimizes others, um, where I see that the Maritime Union of Australia has expressed its support for Gomorrah people that are fighting against Santos at the 
um, and, you know, their attempt at, with their future acts amendment attempts at the Native Title Tribunal. But, you know, what what does this mean for that kind of solidarity? Does it mean that, um, you know, unions are going to be uh, – is, is there an attempt to divorce union solidarity from these other things by these amendments? I think it is really concerning. Um, so I was wondering, uh, just to wrap up um, – where can people find out more about the work of legal observers and keep up to date with challenges to the anti-protest laws, including any current upcoming, uh, current or upcoming challenges to the legislation? Yeah, I think the best place to follow updates from us is on Twitter. So we're Legal Obs New South Wales is our tag. We've also got our website, legalobserversnewsouthwales.org. And the other organization that we've been working on this with is Counteract. So that's one word there, Facebook and Twitter. We'll also have updates. They provide um, legal support for activists taking direct action across Australia. So they've been really influential in this campaign and will continue continue leading the fight as it continues into a, a potential future constitutional challenge within, I, I think, even potentially the next couple of weeks. Yeah, excellent. Well, we'll definitely be keeping an eye on that. And Anastasia, thank you so much for taking the time to explain uh, the legislative environment in New South Wales and why these laws are so concerning. Thank you for your appreciate time. Take care. All right, and you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and that was Anastasia from Legal Observers New South Wales who joined us to discuss some serious concerns with the recent passing of anti-protest laws in New South Wales. So the Roads and Crimes Legislation Amendment 2022 passed the New South Wales Parliament on Friday the 1st of April, and this sparked widespread backlash from community and advocacy groups arguing that the laws undermine the right to protest and fundamental civil liberties. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains and the Victorian Government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR 855am. And we are now jumping into an interview with Kate Taylor. Kate is a singer-songwriter, EAL teacher and refugee activist who is a, the organiser and host for Musicians for Freedom, a benefit concert where musicians, activists and refugees come together to raise funds and awareness in support of refugees in detention. The event will be held at the Brunswick Ballroom on Wednesday 27th of April at 6.30pm. Good morning, Kate. Thanks for joining us this morning. Hi, Monica. Um, I guess starting off, would you mind um, 
describing the event and what people can expect when attending? Um, yeah, sure. So it's happening on um, April the 27th at Brunswick Ballroom and there'll be a lineup of musicians and speakers. Um, so there'll be um, performances, but in between performances we'll have speakers like Alison Batterson, who is a lawyer from um, Human Rights for All, and she's been representing some of the men and helping, like, facilitating with some of the releases. Yeah. Um, and there'll also be Arnold Zabel, the writer, and there'll be one of the men um, who was recently released, Joy McBee. He'll, he'll also be speaking and um, sharing his story. Mm. It really sounds like an important event. What do you hope this event achieves for those in attendance and refugees currently in detention? Um, well, I guess the aim of it is that we're hoping it will increase awareness of these issues um, because, yeah, there are still a lot of people who perhaps aren't aware exactly of what's going on because there's been so much disinformation spread about it. Yeah, um, yeah and we're hoping it'll motivate people to take some more action and, and support refugees. Um, but also the aim is that it will give hope to, to those that are still in detention who... Um, you know, which is it's critically important now because there are so few remaining and it just gets harder and harder every time, mm. you know, they see their friends released and then they're left. So, yeah, they really need all the support they can get right now. Yeah. And mm. it sounds like for this event, activists, lawyers and refugees will all share their stories and hopes in between the musical performances. Mm. What have been some of the highlights you and your team have had when organising this event? Um, yeah, there have been... There's been a few highlights. It's actually been a really, um, a really great experience organising it. So I think, well, actually, one of the main things has been that there's been some releases, you know, during the time that this idea first came to light that we were going to do this. Um, I think, yeah, just one week ago, there was a group of men released, and each time there's a group released, there's um, a welcome party for them at one of the activists' houses. And so all the activists come together, um, as well as some of the men that were released eight months ago or a year ago, and then the newly released men. So it's just mm. this incredible, you know, coming together of people who've been involved, who you might not have met, but you've seen a lot, you know, popping up on Facebook and stuff. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, everyone comes together. and It's just a time where you can actually really be joyful, for, which doesn't <laughs> happen a lot in this with this issue because it's... Um, yeah, it's very frustrating. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. But I was going to say something else about the highlights. Um, let me think. Um, no, sorry, can't. Let's see. <laughs> I think it was. You're right in that there's very few yeah. moments for celebration and for joy um, yeah. in this process. So it's nice to have that. And I guess often those in indefinite refugee detention are subject. Mm-hmm subjected to inhumane conditions with minimal supports to transition out of detention and exit, mm. years of limited social support and likely relocation out of so-called Australia if the mm. government does not allow them to stay. How can people support recently released refugees as well as the refugees who are currently in detention? Yeah, um, such a good question. Um, so for, for those still in detention, people can be doing things like finding and writing the ministers to call for their immediate release. So Alex Hawke and um, Karen Andrews and, and Scott Morrison. 
um, attending rallies. There's going to be a really big rally this Sunday, the Palm Sunday Rally, where people will meet. Um, I think we're meeting at the State Library, but just check that for people listening that would like to come. Yeah. Um, but And then we'll be walking to the Park Hotel, which is where there's there's eight men remaining now at the Park Hotel. So, mm. um, And, it, yeah, the rally will end there and, and there'll be speakers and... Um, and yeah, and telling their stories to counter the government lies because you know they, they the things that the government come out with need correcting often. Like even yeah. you know the the time not long ago when Scott Morrison denied there were any refugees in Park Hotel, um, that was appalling. So people jumped on that and then corrected it and said actually no, there are you yeah. know refugees as well as asylum seekers. Um, attending the Park Hotel daily um, in Carlton where they're being held. So at 6pm there's a group of people who come together to... We stand outside their windows with signs and that just gives the men a lot of... You know, at least they know they're not forgotten. Mm. Um, and weekends at 3 o'clock also there's a group of people. Grandmothers for refugees meet on Sundays at 3pm outside. And for those in the community, um, that uh, there's... They've, they've been released. They they get um, three weeks accommodation from the government, and then they're pretty much just left on their own. Yeah. So, um, and these are people who are they're in shock actually. Like, um, really, they just look absolutely shell shocked, and they've got um, you know they've got a long, long road to recovery. Um, but they they actually need to find jobs as soon as they can to support themselves. But they're really you know some of them are not well enough to be working right now. Yeah. So. Things like donating to um, refugee advocacy groups like the Bridgedean Asylum Seeker Project is one that does fantastic work. Refugee Voices. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and also continuing. Like, In fact, this is one of the most important things, to continue to lobby the government for permanent visas. Yeah. Um, because those that have been released have got... They've just got bridging visas and they've got no right to study. And, you know, some of the men that have come out, they were young and they're still young and they, they, they want to study, they want to, you know, begin their mm-hmm. lives um, and have the same rights as everybody else. So, yeah, yeah very much. They, they need permanent visas so they can settle. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that this morning, Kate. And You're welcome. Um, for people that are interested in join, joining in, in all the fun and celebration and joy at the Music Musicians yeah. for Freedom yeah. event, um, they can check out um, tickets at Mosh Ticks. So I yeah. think it's just looking for Musicians for Freedom on the Mosh Ticks, so M-O-S-H-T-I-X website. And yeah. so it will be on Wednesday, the 27th of April at 6.30 p.m. at the Brunswick Ballroom. That's right. Yeah, yeah. great. Thank you so much for joining us Thanks this morning, for Kate. Thank you, It was great to talk with you. We just heard from Kate Taylor, who is a singer-songwriter, EAL teacher and refugee activist, who is the organiser and host for Musicians um, for Freedom, a benefit concert where musicians, activists and refugees come together to raise funds and awareness in support of refugees in detention. And this event will be held at the Brunswick Ballroom on Wednesday, the 27th of April at 6.30pm. And you can find tickets for this event on Moshtix, so that's M-O-S-H-T-I-X, and if you just search Musicians for Freedom. And uh, something else really important to plug there when we're thinking about, um, you know, really important refugee-led uh, organizing work 
you know, to, to support people uh, that are in the community and, you know, that is autonomous and refugee-led is to follow the work of Rise Refugee and make sure that you donate to them. Um, Rise have asked that we don't bury Exitani voices or undermine their over three decades of labor towards dismantling immigration detention centers. And they've outlined 10 demands uh, that you can find on their social media. So that's at Rise Refugee on Instagram and I believe on Twitter as well. Um, and you can also set up recurring donations to Rise to support the work that they do to support people that have been, um, you know, harmed by Australia's border regime and immigration detention system. Um, just really important to support that organizing work and also their demands around systemic changes that need to occur uh, to dismantle unjust laws and institutions that, quote, engage in and promote the abuse and criminalization of their members. Uh, so you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we might just go into another track this morning. So this is a new one from Calypso. This is Pure Shores. I can call mine 
PX Fano is a Pacifica LGBTIQ plus podcast providing a platform for Pacifica communities to unpack and discuss the narratives and the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Presented by Pacific X, a collective that celebrates Pacific Island LGBTIQ plus communities through meaningful connections that honours cultural and gender identities. You can catch the podcast series every Sunday during Out of the Pan at around 12.30pm or on your favourite podcast platform. Supported by 3CR and funded by the Victorian Government Multicultural Communications Outreach Programme. For more information, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash out of the pan. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And you just heard the track um, Pure Shores by Calypso. Um, such a lovely, such a lovely way to start the morning. And um, we're just going to go into an interview with Jason, Jason Sadowski, who's a senior research fellow in the Emerging Technologies Research Lab at Monash University and who's speaking with us about issues with Buy Now, Pay Later, pay later or BNPL platforms, including FUPE, which is an Australian platform. And FUPE last week announced partnerships with IGA, Foodworks and United Petroleum, um, which has raised concerns about people experiencing financial hardship falling further into debt through using these platforms. Jason, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on, Priya. Yeah, of course. Um, I'm sure that our listeners will probably be familiar with and have probably already engaged with Buy Now, Pay Later or BNPL platforms like Afterpay, Klarna and Zip, which have become pretty ubiquitous over the past five or so years. Um, so I was wondering if you could start off by telling us a bit about the basic operating principles of these platforms. Yeah, of course. So, right, Buy Now, Pay Later is everywhere now. And, you know, it really exploded during the pandemic, um, which is not surprising when we find out how they actually work in terms of, you know, really fueling the, the debt consumption, kind of picking up the slack of people, you know, their budgets being tight, perhaps they've lost their job. And buy-now-pay-later companies really stepped in as a way of essentially saying, you know, you can still get all the things that you want. You can do your online shopping and so on, um, and you don't have to pay for everything all at once. You know, the, the predominant model for these companies now is the, the four easy payments, right? So rather than buying um, something that you want and paying the full cost, you pay 25% of the cost up front, and then over the next two weeks you pay – another 25%, and then two weeks later, another 25 and so on. And so you know, they really kind of market this as a as a easy, free, cheap way to drag out the cost of something. And, and that idea of it being uh, uh, interest-free and fee-free is a big part of these companies and the way that they try to get people into using the platforms and the fact that you know, you go online and, and buy something from Amazon or uh, Big W, you know, anywhere really, and it's now really common to see like three or four of these buy now, pay later companies at the checkout kind of vying for you to say, why pay for the full cost now? Use us and you can pay for it over the next six weeks. Yeah, it is. Um, it's kind of terrifying to see how, you know, how widespread these have become, especially as we see, um, you know, growing rates of inequality, and especially in Australia with the impact of the pandemic, seeing, um, 
especially, you know, hits to the, the rollback of the uh, COVID supplements to the, to the welfare payments, um, with these companies then being like, you know, we've lowered our threshold for what you can, um, you know, what you can purchase. And, you know, you, so you can put things um, now, groceries on, on these buy now, pay later platforms. So last week we heard that FuPay spread into the grocery and fuel sectors with its announcement of partnerships with Foodworks, IGA Marketplace and United Petroleum. And Jared Brody, who's the CEO of Consumer Action Law Center in Victoria, recently told the New Daily about some of the the concerning and predatory aspects of buy now, pay later, particularly for consumers that are facing financial hardship or who require assistance with money management. And um, I was wondering if you could talk us through some of those concerns with uh, BNPL platforms lowering their pay limits and being increasingly used to cover essential items rather than, say, um, you know, a a luxury item or, uh, you know, like a household appliance or furniture, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, this is a huge move in terms of buy now, pay later, really trying to capture a lot more of our spending. So, right, not just these, you know, not just furniture, not just clothes, but fuel, groceries, uh, even rent, you know. So putting, uh, like, Pay, which was in the news recently, and as you talked about, you know, they market themselves as buy now, pay later for everything. So they really want to say, you know, it's not just this new – pair of jeans or this new couch, but it really is like your 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 lunch, your groceries, your rent, everything. And what is really, I think, insidious about this is that it traps people into what they think of as cheap credit, but then end up becoming a lot more expensive than they realize when it's fine and dandy for a lot of these if you actually make the payments on time. And, you, you know, you never miss it. You keep track of all the different buy now, pay later credit lines that you have open. And it's really common for people who use these to not just use it once, but to have multiple of these kind of payment plans going at the same time. And if you meet all the the, the due dates, then you're fine. You're probably not going to get much interest, if any, or any fees. But a recent survey of uh, in the U.S., and I think we can – you know, say that it's the same here in Australia. A recent survey um, last year of people using Buy Now, Pay Later companies showed that uh, over a third of people using these had fallen behind on one or more payments. And um, 72% of, of those people who fell behind on at least one payment said that they thought it impacted their credit score. And some people said significant they saw significant declines in their credit score. And so this is where the companies can really uh, sneak their way in there and start levying all these late fees, these sudden surprise payments or or charges. And and that can start making uh, a relatively cheap thing like groceries or, or your lunch become a lot more expensive a lot more quickly. And, you know, and, and this is really, I think, uh, part of the business model of these companies is to get people to use them not as a every once in a while thing, but as an all the time thing. And then you end up losing track of it. You miss some payments and suddenly that starts sparking a lot of revenue for these companies. Yeah, and I mean, in Australia, there's a there's a vibrant industry of poverty profiteers already. Um, so, you know, just thinking about the impact that 
these lowered thresholds of, of uh, you know, payment limits at buy now, pay later platforms like FuPay uh, is really is really worrying. And um, I'm thinking about how this expansion links into concerns with our already inadequate social security rates and the principle of individual responsibility that underpins our welfare system. Um, and, you know, you've already touched on this, but I thought – um, if you wanted to, do you want to take us through a bit more of how these platforms, you know, profit off poverty and financial insecurity? Absolutely. You know, I'm so I live in Melbourne, and I'm sure, you know, uh, if you're if you're in Melbourne or, or Sydney, um, you know, you probably are starting to see these billboards popping up all over the place at bus stops, at train stations, um, advertising a company called Before Pay. So this is one of the new entrants, right? We've got Afterpay, we've got Foopay, we've got Beforepay. Uh, and, you know, I think the explosion of this sector of buy now, pay later also is coming with a, uh, a various different business model. So unlike Afterpay or Foopay, which is about, you know, buy this thing, pay for it, and for you these installments and so on, Beforepay looks a lot more like payday loans rather than a cheap credit line. So before pay is, you know, essentially saying, you know, we'll give you an advance on your on your pay for your job, but you can also get an advance on your link through before pay, right? And so what they're what they're doing here, and of course that then comes with you know different interest rates and fees and so on, but it's all on an app and it's really convenient and it's really easy to do, um, and you can do it constantly. And what I think they are really doing here is they are specifically targeting people who are the most vulnerable, who have the most financial tightness in their budget, and saying, you need money now before you get paid, not later. And so we'll help you with that. But then we're going to get our own cut from it. And, and, and you know, I think this is a really prime example of showing two things. One, how it's expensive to be poor, Right. It's expensive to be poor in a lot of ways. And this is one of the ways in which, you know, when you don't have money to make your rent, when you don't have money to buy your groceries, these companies and these, uh, you know, these apps and technologies are ready to step in. But then they're going to make those things even more expensive because they want to take a cut. And I think what it really shows is also, you know, a lot of these companies kind of talk about themselves in terms of being budgetary management tools or lifestyle management tools, things like that. And what it really is doing is it's, cause, it's putting a lot of the responsibility and onus um, on individuals to deal with, you know, economic depression, to deal with really tough times rather than actually, you know, the government stepping in and providing aid rather than employers stepping in paying more you know we constantly hear before pay after pay food pay but what people really need is more pay they don't need these companies that are going to um, take a cut of their pay people just need to be paid more yeah i mean i couldn't have put it better it really is um you know it is it is wild to just see the explosion of a group of you know different kinds of entities that sort of skirt around the existing regulatory um, structures that we have uh, that find these new and innovative ways to I guess make money off of um, off of financial deprivation and um, and hardship and 
You've mentioned before that Australia in particular is a bit of a haven for buy now, pay later platform development. And what are some of the features of our regulatory environment that lend themselves to this proliferation of companies? Sorry. And what do you think needs to change in Australian regulations, but I guess also in terms of international regulatory agreements to mitigate against this? Yeah, it's a really kind of interesting feature of the Australian economy that the last that I heard, uh, Australia had more of these buy now, pay later companies. Uh, Australia had more of these buy now, pay later companies on the ASX, the Australia Securities Exchange, than any other stock or security exchange in the world. Um, and so there is something about, you know, the Australian regulatory system is specifically geared towards what they call doing a, a regulatory sandbox where they want it to be really easy for these kind of fintech or financial technology companies like the buy now, pay later to come into Australia, uh, set up their companies, try out their services on the Australian public in a really low, uh, a light touch regulatory environment. And so I think it attracts a lot of these companies to Australia, and it also incentivizes a lot of these companies being created in Australia. Uh, and, and I think from the government's point of view, they see this as, you know, financial technology or fintech as a potential uh, engine of economic growth, a way of making the Australia, you know, really innovative on the global stage. But I think the mistake here is that it's ending up incentivizing companies that are largely, in my view, based on regressive redistribution, so taking money from the bottom and funneling it to the top, and fictitious capital, right? It's not really a service that's based in any kind of material good or production. It's not something that's uh, socially useful in any kind of major way. Instead, it's about just using money to create more money um, for people who already have money. <laughs> and, and I think that this is a real mistake in the, the Australian regulatory environment um, in terms of uh, seeing any innovation as equal to social progress. And that's simply not the case at all. Yeah, the... I mean, just seeing the, the government's uh, hard eyes, like, wow, Digital Transformation Agency and um, variety of different approaches into, um, I guess, framing any kind of digital innovation is good is is just so mind-boggling and concerning um, and obviously has led to an environment that incentivizes the development of these kinds of platforms. I know this sounds extremely facetious after everything that you just said, but do you think there could be a good version of buy now, pay later, or is it fundamentally flawed? And also, just to wrap up, where can people find out more about your own work? Yeah, so I mean, I think it is a really good question. It's a question that we really have to um, take seriously because as as these companies are uh, uh, created now and as they kind of exist within this kind of political and economic conditions of capitalism, um, the way that they're created is, I think, fundamentally flawed. And but but at their heart, and I think one of the things, one of the reasons why they've become so popular. And one of the reasons why they are exploding so much is because at their heart, they have actually identified a real social problem. They're just not providing the solution we need. There's a social, the, the social problem here is that there does need to be access to cheap and easy credit for people 
to when a, when a surprise expense comes up or when they need a little bit of extra money to help stretch uh, from week to week. People do need access to that aid, and they, you know, to, uh, whether it's um, uh, government aid in terms of like Social Security or cheap credit. But what, we'll, what we have now is, uh, you know, profit-driven companies stepping in to take the role of what should be, um, you know, government agencies, it should be social welfare, it should be nonprofit organizations that are in, that should be filling that gap rather than these buy-now-pay-later companies mm. that are really interested in um, having their hands all over our, our wallets. Uh, and so, you know, that, that to me is the, the, the fundamental flaw here is um, that they've identified a real problem and they've presented us with the worst possible solution to it. Yeah. So. No. <laughs> but, no, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, uh, I was just going to say, uh, to, ask, to answer your, your question of where people can find my, my work, uh, right, so I, I uh, am a, a researcher at Monash University, and you can find my academic work there, but I also uh, co-host a podcast called This Machine Kills, um, which – yeah, every week does episodes looking at the political economy of technology, and we recently had a really long episode talking about buy now, pay later. Excellent, and I'd be lying if I didn't say that that was the inspiration for getting you on to talk about this today because I was like, who would know about this? Um, <laughs> so, Jason, thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk us through it. Thank you, Priya. It was great. And that was Jason Sadowski, a senior research fellow in the Emerging Technologies Research Lab at Monash University, who spoke with us about Buy Now, Pay Later, or BNPL platforms in Australia. Trans Family is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones including parents, siblings, extended family, and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation, and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to TransFamily are tax-deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. TransFamily is a 3CR supporter. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done by Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done by Law, 6 p.m. Tuesdays. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, and we are now 
joining in an interview with Liel, who is a writer, poet and podcaster, and a disability and justice advocate who was an ABC Top 5 Arts resident in 2021. She also works as a provisional psychologist and identifies as a proud disabled immigrant and non-conforming female. Good morning, Liel. Thanks for joining us this morning. Morning, Malika. Thanks for having me. Um, I guess... To jump straight into it, um, could you tell um, listeners a bit more about the process of writing your piece for the new book, We've Got This, Stories by Disabled Parents? Yeah, definitely. So this piece was fantastic to write. It was kind of exciting and scary at the same time. I think I was scared um, because of the discrimination that we face as disabled people and as immigrants. So I was kind of worried about what it would be like to reveal what it was like my experience as parenting um, but it was also very exciting because I felt like this was a, a, an amazing opportunity I feel very privileged to be a part of this book and I felt a sense of responsibility you know my perspective being both a disabled person and an immigrant is not a perspective that we often hear or yeah. see in mainstream culture so I felt like I had to be really honest and explore what it was like um, so it was really freeing in a way as well because I just decided that I was a really big opportunity to, you know, kind of express what it means to be me and my experiences and stop kind of having to hide it and or downplay it. Mm. And I hope that it will help other people who might be feeling like I once felt when I first became a parent, which yeah. is isolated and scared, um, you know, to take comfort and strength in knowing they're not alone and also to get some support. Um, and, yeah, it was really fantastic as well, just reflecting on all the good things um, <laughs> in my experiences because that's not often kind of what we hear um, about disability and disabled mm. parenting. So it was lovely to just think about all the uniqueness that I bring to my children's lives and, mm. you know, all the value that I bring because I think my disability makes me a unique parent. So I mm. take a lot of kind of care and pride into teaching my kids about inclusion and access and um, my kid has kind of developed empathy at a very young age and very cutely kind of kisses my leg, you know, and asks about pain and things like that, which I think... Um, is very unique and, um, you know, a very positive thing. No, that's such a wholesome story to share. Thanks, Leo. And one of the things I really, um, really reflected on in your piece was you referred frequently to the ideal and, in quotes, Australian mother. Can you share a bit more about what it was like recognising, sorry, not recognising, reconciling with that notion that was constantly forced on you, it seemed? Yeah, Um, I think it's forced on a lot of people, and we internalize what it means to be a good mother or a good parent before we even become parents. And so in Australia, there's things like women taking 12 months off paid work, exclusively breastfeeding and things like that. And I guess as soon as I went into parenting, um, pretty quickly I realized that I couldn't achieve a lot of those external goals. And it was heartbreaking because I thought, I mean, I felt like I was failing, even though, uh, you know, everything was fine. I was doing, my baby was doing great and, um, but just that gap between what I thought I should be like and what it was actually like just kept kind of creating a lot of anxiety and sadness, really, and shame about, you know, the fact that I'm maybe not as good of a parent as I should be. And so what got me out of that and the way I reconciled that was community. I just started writing and reading to kind of cope with parenting, and I found this amazing thing called a disability community, which I never knew existed, never imagined it. Um, so I found other people who are disabled, they're actually proud and talk about being disabled in public and work towards kind of creating a better society for all of us. And that's really helped me find pride and 
Now, as you said in the introduction, I'm a proud disabled person, and this really kind of fits into my parenting because I started just accepting the way that I am rather than what I thought I should be like. And I stopped consuming, I kind of shifted from consuming kind of, you know, mainstream media and social media and advice about parenting, and I looked into diverse role models, and I mainly found those on social media. And... Um, also started listening to my own body and kind of yeah. said, okay, if if I've got a sore leg, that means I need to stop and not push through that and um, be a bit more open about my disability. And gradually, yeah, that really helped me kind of accept and really celebrate that I am the perfect parent for my kids. And we talk openly about disability, and I think that definitely yeah. creates kind of a more accepting environment for them as well, that they can be fully who they are as well. Yeah. And I guess, like, touching on that point as well about the intersection of being a disabled person but as a, a parent and an immigrant, with fear-mongering in the media around this nation's unfair immigration policies, you also raise a really important point in your piece about having to s- decide whether or not you should disclose your disability because it could impact your immigration outcomes. Could you briefly speak to that point? Yeah, so I think we all would have seen in the media stories about either individuals or sometimes even whole families being denied visas from in Australia because of one person's disability. And as a disabled person, it just leaves me feeling very unsafe to disclose my disability. So as a new parent, I was just hoping that someone would actually ask me about it um, and not me having to raise it because I didn't feel safe to do so because I just always worried that if I said to someone, hey, actually I have a disability and I'm in pain and I'm not, you know, I need some support, I would, I was worried that it will kind of raise flags with immigration or social services and obviously that's not something that anyone wants to. So I was kind of very conflicted between really desperate for something to change because I was in a lot of physical pain and I felt very isolated, but also um, I was too scared to actually bring it up myself. Yeah. So I didn't do that until um, much later once I found that kind of disability pride and the community that gives me strength and now to be able to do things like this and be open about it and write about it in the book. Yeah. Um, having the strength to do that comes from numbers and knowing that there are other people like me um, who kind of advocate and support our rights yeah. um, in this country. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. It, it is about having that community both as a parent and a disabled parent and all of those different intersections. And um, it was really lovely reading that in your piece. And lastly, before we wrap up, who are some other disabled authors that you are enjoying reading at the moment? Oh, there's, there's, I'll saying there's so many. So I think people just need to start kind of sitting through and finding them. But one of my favorites is Carly Finlay, who's the one who's kind of introduced me to this whole world of disability pride. Um, and I also love KK's work, Andy Jackson, who writes incredible poetry, and Shakira Hussein, who also has a chapter in We've Got This, which I loved and laughed out loud as I was reading it. Um, but yeah, I also have kind of, on my social media accounts, especially my Instagram, I often share other disabled writers and creators um, to kind of develop that understanding and also just our pride. So if people want to, they can kind of find me um, at the LK Bridgeford and anywhere, and I often share yeah, other people's work yeah. as well. And briefly, could you also plug your amazing podcast, please? <laughs> oh, of course. Um, so my podcast is called Unmarginalized, and you can find that. Um, on any good podcast app and there's another season coming very soon this year which is supported by the city of melbourne so i'm very excited we've got some interviews with fantastic people who 
people navigate intersectionality like me, so they're kind of multiply marginalised and they can't wait to see what comes out of it. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us this morning, Leo. Thank you so much for having me, Malika. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM and we just heard from Leo, who is a writer, poet, podcaster and a disability justice advocate. So we're coming up to the end of today's show and we might just take you through a rundown of uh, yeah what we've had on for today. Before I do that, I did want to again plug the fundraiser that is happening today at Baonyop in Brunswick. So you can find that by looking up at B-A-O-N-G-O-C Brunswick on Instagram. And that fundraiser is for Black Pearl Studio in Fitzroy, which is an autonomous community space, a creative space for uh, Aboriginal people in the community who are often marginalized from art spaces elsewhere, but who are talented creators. Um, and this is really um, putting money towards an excellent cause. And so um, Banyup are running a... Um, I think it's an inauthentic bun me. Um, I guess like they're making inauthentic bun me from 12 p.m. until they're sold out. And so you can find out more information. Yeah, by finding by looking them up on social media, go get something delicious and support Black Pearl. Now for today, we first up had Anastasia from Legal Observers in New South Wales joining us to discuss serious concerns with recent legislation passed in New South Wales uh, around anti-protest laws. And so that's the Roads and Crimes Legislation Amendment 2022, which passed the New South Wales Parliament on Friday, the 1st of April, and has sparked widespread backlash um, a- you know, with concerns that the laws undermine the right to protest and fundamental civil liberties. We were then joined by Kate Taylor, who is a singer-songwriter, EAL teacher and refugee activist, and is also the organiser and host for Musicians for Freedom, a benefit concert where musicians, activists and refugees come together to raise funds and awareness in support of refugees in detention. This event will be held at the Brunswick Ballroom on Wednesday the 27th of April at 6.30pm, and you can find tickets on Moshtix, M-O-S-H-T-I-X, by searching Musicians for Freedom. We were then joined by Jathan Sadowski, who's a research fellow, sorry, senior research fellow in the Emerging Technologies Research Lab at Monash University. And Jathan spoke with us about issues with Buy Now Pay Later or BNPL platforms, including Australian company FooPay, which last week announced partnerships with IGA, Foodworks and United Petroleum. And this has raised concerns about people experiencing financial hardship falling further into debt through using these platforms. And lastly, we were joined by Liel, who is a writer, poet, podcast, and a disability and justice advocate who was an ABC Top 5 Arts resident in 2021. Her work is published in the ABC and the space scene of the Waiting Room Arts Company, amongst others. Liel is the creator, producer and host of the Unmarginalized podcast and she also works as a provisional psychologist and identifies as a proud, disabled, immigrant, non-conforming female and she joined us to talk about her piece in the new book, We've Got This, Stories by Disabled Parents. Amazing. I'm... Truly floored that we have managed to not only make it through a massive show with music included music. <laughs> um, and have had time for a full rundown. You know, this is professional broadcasting right here. Thanks so much, Malika, and thanks, everybody, for listening. And we will catch you next week. Thanks, Priya.
3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.